Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hi, everyone. I'm Elizabeth from Heels in the Courtroom. We have a lot of new listeners who may have missed some of our earlier podcasts, so we thought we'd drop one of our favorite episodes for an encore presentation. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Liz Lenevy, and today I am joined by the whole crew, Amy Gunn. Hi. Erica Slater. Hey, everyone. Mary Simon. Hey. And joining us remotely, Elizabeth McNulty. Hi. So today we are going to be talking about sanctions. And just to clarify, we are talking about sanctions within the confines of litigation, not necessarily attorney misconduct. And and so I just want to make that very clear. And so for sanctions within litigation, I thought the best place to start would be the rules of civil procedure. Please don't turn the podcast off. I promise it'll be really quick (laughs) and it won't be boring. Rule 11 of the federal... rules of civil procedure is where you turn to when you want to look at sanctions, but not for discovery. Discovery, you got to look over at Rule 37. But focusing on Rule 11, which is sort of the big sanctions rule, what it basically says is that when you are filing a motion, you are representing to the court that everything within the motion is accurate to the best of your knowledge. Your argument is warranted. You are not just filing this to be harassing or to delay litigation or drive up the cost. And so basically rule 11B is be truthful, be reasonable, be professional. And if you have failed to be one of those three things, your opposing counsel can go after you under rule 11C which is the sanctions rule, it says, if after notice and a reasonable opportunity to respond, the court determines that Rule 11B has been violated, the court may impose an appropriate sanction on any attorney, law firm, or party that violated the rule or is responsible for the violation. Absent exceptional circumstances, a law firm must be held jointly responsible for a violation committed by its partner, associate, or employee. And so that's Federal Rule 11C. And again, if you're looking for specific discovery sanctions, look at Rule 37A3. And then for any of our Missouri practitioners who may be listening, uh, look to Missouri Supreme Court Rule 6101. Now, I've been practicing for right around five years now. And in my five years, I have never once had sanctions threatened against me. And I have never had to threaten sanctions against any of my opposing counsel. So I want to take a quick poll of the room. Who has experience with sanctions? Either either doling them out or (laughs) maybe receiving them? Put your hands up high, (laughs) ladies. Mary, your, your hand is up. What is your sanctions story? It's funny because I've been practicing for a shorter time than you have, Liz. And my first encounter with sanctions, not against me or our law firm, was I want to say maybe four months after I got sworn in, maybe about four months. And it was the first trial that I was a part of at our office after I got licensed. And to, I'm even having like PTSD (laughs) thinking about (laughs) the trial. We had requested a series of documents from the defendants in this case, maybe three or four times throughout litigation. And the closer we got to trial, the more important the documents got because we needed them to review them before trial. And so 
We had cooperated with opposing counsel as much as we could on giving extensions and giving time extensions. Then we filed a motion to compel, which we've talked about before on this podcast, and the judge ordered the defendants to produce the documents to us. They did not produce the documents to us. Then the judge ordered it that a deposition be taken to get the documents. We did that. We didn't get the records. We were in trial and had not yet received these documents. The judge was very frustrated with opposing counsel. And I will never forget this moment. Finally, the judge had everyone come into chambers. And it might have been on a weekend, actually, but there were so many you know, discovery disputes that it warranted it. And finally, as we're making our last argument in good faith, never disparaging the other side, you know, just telling the judge facts and why we need these documents and that the court had ordered them to be produced, the other side ultimately ended up producing a witness who told us that the records we wanted had burned in a fire. <laughs> and I'm serious. I'm actually serious. The dust 100%. Start, started by their dog. Yeah. Yeah. So, in a trash can, only with these documents inside. Correct. <laughs> you could just sense the frustration that the court had and that the judge had with the other side. And honestly, the thing that was really nice about it is that we did not bring it up to the judge first. We knew that they would have to tell the judge how the court-ordered deposition went. And we decided, you know... We're just going to let the court know we still don't have the documents and that we took the court-ordered deposition and turn it over to the other side. So they would have to tell the judge about this fire that happened. And the funny thing about the fire was that it only it only burned up a couple pages in a fax. So some of the pages were there and some of them weren't. So you draw your own conclusion. Correct. That's <laughs> insane. Yeah, it, it is insane. It's an insane and I, story. You know, it boded well for us for the outcome of that trial. And one of the things that I think was so frustrating, not only just, you know, anyone who's ever tried a case or practiced law knows just the frustrations of discovery disputes in general, especially when you are honest and truthful and trying your best to get the issue resolved without court intervention. At that point, all of the frustration had built up and all we wanted was, as Liz talked about in the rule, an quote-unquote appropriate sanction or an appropriate remedy. And it's, at least in Missouri, we found that's really difficult because there's just a lot of judicial discretion of what the remedy is. And, you know, we're in trial. And essentially in that case, all that ended up happening was that we were able to just bring up the fact that that's what happened as much as we wanted with any witness. We really were just unlimited in our ability to cross-examine witnesses about it which, again, the trial turned out really well for us, which is wonderful. It'd be nice if there was a little bit more guidance on what an appropriate remedy is, because at that point, these documents were such a significant part of the case that, quite frankly, all the pleading should have been stricken. I don't know if a judge would ever be willing to do that. It tells you a lot about the way that you want to conduct yourself as an attorney and in discovery and with the court. It taught me a lot about what type of attorney I, I want to be and, and what I don't want to be. Mary, did you actually file a motion for sanctions or when you were discussing with the court and chambers what had happened? We were deciding whether or not we wanted to file a motion for sanctions. I mean, that is how, 
you know, serious, uh, at least me and the attorneys I was working with on the case, take sanctions, right? We really are trying our hardest to preserve a record while also not bothering the judge with extra items that don't need to be addressed. And after the conversation in chambers happened, we filed the motion for sanctions during the trial. We wanted to get it on the record. One of the things I think is interesting the court has this discretion that you're talking about. And what that means, of course, is the judge can decide from a myriad of different, quote, remedies. And you had mentioned striking the pleadings. And I want to make sure that that's clear for those maybe who aren't lawyers listening. When you file a lawsuit, you file your initial petition or complaint, and the defendant files an answer. We file the lawsuit, the defendant, quote, answers that. And in that answer, which is just a pleading, everything's denied, pretty much. They deny every allegation of negligence, every allegation, almost everything is denied. And that sets up the rest of the case for discovery and what we have to prove to the jury. If the answer is stricken, if the pleading is stricken, the defendant now has no answer to our allegations which means that they're admitted. So to strike an answer puts really the only thing left to a jury to decide is damages. So you can see where a judge would be loath to do that, to really take the decision about whether defendant is negligent or liable out of the jury's hands. If the judge is loath to do that or never does that, then really it teaches the defense bar what it can get away with. And I know that's a difficult thing to put on a judge, but it is part of the job. And from our perspective, Mary, you're so right. We don't take filing sanctions lightly. It will blow back on you, whether you're right or wrong for filing a motion for sanctions. We're a small legal community. You all out there practicing, whether you're in the St. Louis area, Missouri area, or around the country, it always feels like the legal community is small. And if you're known for filing sanctions, it's going to stick to you. If you're known for violating court orders or not answering discovery, that sticks to you. So the notion of sanctions is and should be a very serious thing, whether you're filing them or violating court orders. Because we've talked a lot, I guess our community and our society's talked a lot lately about the rule of law. And at its boiling down, uh, the essence is these rules, the way we conduct ourselves as lawyers. We really do rise and fall by the rule of law. And if you're someone who looks at those rules and doesn't follow them and doesn't answer the discovery that's sent to you or destroys evidence or maybe not destroys evidence but can't find it, or doesn't look for it very hard, then you're really contributing to the downfall of how, I don't want to sound too preachy, (laughs) to the way our civil society works and the way our legal system works. So it's not a small thing, and it shouldn't be a small thing. Erica, what has your experience with sanctions been? Funny ones, <laughs> if that's possible. I actually do have a funny story about sanctions. When I was probably practicing somewhere between a year and two years, I was on the defense side, 
And the plaintiff's attorney had not disclosed any experts in the case. And we filed a motion for summary judgment saying the injury that they were claiming was not something that it wasn't like a broken bone from a slip and fall or laceration or something from a vehicle accident. It was something that you'd have to prove with testimony from a doctor saying that this situation caused the injury. And I drove across the state four hours to go argue it. And we won our motion. And the I've actually talked about this attorney quite a bit. He's the one who called me a that I sounded like a pig squealing caught under a fence. Um, Good God. Yeah. Why does he have that reference point? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> he was he is from a small town. There you I, go. Honestly, he acts like it. that struck me. I was like, that is so visual, sir. <laughs> yeah. I was I was almost struck. Like, I don't think I was sounding too whiny or harpy. I was just arguing my case, but I was like, man, good on you for that visual. You must Seriously. be a great trial attorney. Yeah. <laughs> Storytelling. Um, yeah. Anyway, so the judge did not appreciate this, and that attorney did not know his audience because the judge's temperature was just rising. So at the end of the motion, the judge granted my motion, which meant this guy had no proof of his injury, and I was on cloud nine. And then he sua sponte, meaning the judge acted on his own, made the guy pay for my time drafting the motion and driving across the nice. state oh and gosh. back, which, you so know. You took time on the way home. Yeah. Like <laughs> they had to send our firm a check for a couple thousand dollars to reimburse for the attorney's fees that I had spent doing this. And I remember driving home, like calling the partner I was working with and being like, guess what? (laughs) And I like begged him, like, can I call the client and tell them we're sending their money back? Like, this is great. So that's a cautionary tale. It doesn't necessarily involve me taking the step of filing sanctions, but just letting someone kind of dig their own grave there. But that's also a perfect example of something you won't forget. I know that pig squealing thing, (laughs) sort of they're they're coupled together and hard to extract. But but certainly, that's the point about your reputation. And if you are that kind of lawyer practicing in that way, you have to have a judge come down on you like that, or else there's no reason not to keep doing it. The other interesting sanction that I've encountered recently, I've just been dealing with this today, actually, in a case, an opposing retained liability expert has testified in our case. And I found out that Let's see, 11 years ago at this point, a Missouri court had ordered this expert to produce documents, and they were financial documents, and the expert failed to produce those documents. And the judge not only struck his testimony in the case, but in that order labeled this expert, the firm that he owned, and literally all agents, affiliates, and employees as venal witnesses. And I had to look up what that meant. Okay, so this is fun. (laughs) This word is venal, V-E-N-A-L. A venal witness is a witness who is basically a hired gun. 
It says they will give testimony to the highest bidder and that they are, the Missouri case law says they are a mercenary. And I was just like, how fancy is all this? So this judge not only provided the sanction of striking that expert from the case, which is a really serious thing, the judge expanded it to all the employees of that firm, which were other engineering consultants. And that has lived with that firm, you know, for a decade at this point. And there's a different engineer that is testifying in our case at that firm. But the judge has stained everyone with that in that firm with that order. And I had just never seen that. And what a bombastic order. (laughs) That judge was really mad. Right. (laughs) Talk about a warning, though, a signal that a judge is sending that's like, nope. All people, all attorneys, they need to know better than doing this, playing this game. Absent special circumstances such as this, I wouldn't typically, you know, subpoena the financials of an expert's firm or something like that. But unfortunately for this firm, attorneys have done this over and over and over over the past decade because a judge has said in a published order that they are financially biased to one side. And, you know, my goal in representing my client is to put forth their best case possible. So when this is the only person testifying against our client, I'm coming after it you. It matters. For yeah. sure. Yeah. They've already shown that they there's a reason to go after them for it. Elizabeth, I want to pass this on to you. What have you seen in regard to sanctions? When I was a law clerk, actually, I worked on a products case that was in federal court and the parent company was in Japan. And so we were asking for a specific category of documents that, you know, was important to the case. They were testing documents and they repeatedly denied that they existed. And they but they did produce some emails that were all in Japanese and we had them translated and they alluded to the fact that testing documents did, in fact, exist And so the attorneys that I was working for at the time filed motion for sanctions, and we'd been asking for a corporate rep of that company, a deposition as well. We were just asking for the deposition to happen in our offices, but the court ordered that the corporate rep deposition would happen in Japan at the defendant's cost. So two of our attorneys got sent to Japan, all expenses paid. (laughs) Wow. As someone who has flown to and from Asia, those are pricey, pricey airline tickets too. (laughs) And, you know, something that this kind of tells me as well, at least in Missouri, is that I think it is difficult for judges to decide an appropriate remedy because both sides have worked up this case. Both clients are there. Experts have been flown in. So much work has gone into the case. It's got to be really difficult decision at that point for a judge to say, you know, you're done. The whole case is just going to be tried on damages, whereas it gives a little bit more lenience or there's a little bit more lenience when you're in discovery and you can say this will get resolved. Here's all the ways it's going to get resolved ahead of time. And I think that that's a little dangerous because regardless of what side you're on, it's it's kind of at least in Missouri, you know, you can push the envelope all the way up to trial, and odds are you won't get slammed that hard for it. At least, you know, that's happened before. So it's just so much trust has to go into the attorneys. So much trust, so much integrity, so much honesty. 
And all of our listeners are seeing the holy grail in their head right now thinking they're going to talk about your reputation again. (laughs) (laughs) It all comes down to your reputation. I only did defense work for a little while. So by no means am, am I speaking for all defense attorneys. I do have several friends who are defense attorneys, though, and I can sympathize with the pressures they feel to retain clients. It, it is a different setup than what we have where individual clients will come to us hopefully only one time with their case, although we have had some people in our office who uh, have been injured more than once and, and have come back to us because they appreciated the representation that we provided them the first time. But in def- And they have terrible luck. <laughs> and they have terrible luck. But for defense attorneys, you have clients that are repeat clients, meaning that you know, you have your book of business where you have your clients and you'll work up individual cases, but it all comes back to the same client. And so there is, I'm sure, a lot of pressure to appease that client consistently. And so when we talk about, well, this is your reputation within the city of St. Louis or within the state or or what have you, that may not necessarily be top of mind for a lot of folks who are saying, I don't really care what so-and-so attorney thinks of me or maybe even what the bar thinks of me. My concern is what my client thinks of me. And I know having spoken to a lot of non-attorneys, a lot of people think that lawyers are the type of people who will do anything to win a case. And now I don't personally believe that, I think that for the most part, we do try to police ourselves and we try to uphold the oath that we all took. But there may be people out there who think that winning at any cost, including cheating, and and that's frankly what it is. It's cheating. I do believe that most lawyers respect the rule of law, respect the oath, respect the privilege that it is to practice law. Those who don't, you know who they are. For me to be suspicious of their intentions or of their word, of their trustworthiness, is going to make me work harder, ask more questions, dig in deeper, create more work for that person. And I don't know. I I think you have to be a long-term thinker when it comes to your reputation. And that's why it's important for older attorneys, more experienced attorneys, to set the example. I remember being very early on in my career, I was working for a defense firm for another with a partner in that defense firm. And the attorney on the other side had asked for some documents from my client, a big corporate client. And by golly, we had some that were responsive. But gosh, they were bad documents for us. And man, (laughs) was that a hard decision. And I will be the first one to say, I really looked hard at the request, the actual ask for that document and tried to figure out a way how it wasn't responsive and how they didn't quite ask for the exact right thing, which of course you don't have to do, but it's a way to object at least. And I remember having a conversation with my partner trying to, me suggesting, well, maybe this, maybe that. And he said, no, Amy. No, this is your ticket. This is your license to practice law. Did you get it easily? Uh, no, no, I did not. Was it cheap? Uh, no, it, it was not cheap. He said, why would you risk it? 
for this, in this moment, on this day, for this client. You're doing your job. We're going to work hard. We're going to do a good job on this case despite doing the right thing. And I've never forgotten it. And I'd like to believe two things, that I have followed that example throughout my career, but also passed that down to those with whom I've worked to have a similar perspective. The last topic that I do want to touch on is if anyone has general advice on how to respond to a motion for sanctions or a threat of sanctions. Well, I have to say, if someone threatens sanctions, okay, y'all can't see my head doing my (laughs) neck cracking right now, but do it. I mean, really, you're going to threaten sanctions? Well, my friend, file away because I will be more than happy to stand at that dais, at that bench, in front of that judge, and answer for myself. Them's fighting words. And so I do think you have to, number one, do the right thing all along, and that'll make it easier. (laughs) But also have some humility, and you do have to respond. And I think humility helps. As we've been saying, judges don't like these motions. They have to be pretty darn bad before it's really going to move a judge to do something drastic. So I think a little humility, document what you've done, show up to the hearing and argue your case uh, in a very nice, uh, (laughs) with a little humility, as I said. And sometimes you can explain it away and, and hopefully you what you've done up to that point will get you past any kind of real sanction. I think everyone's takeaway is be very judicious with any threats or filing of sanctions or motion for sanctions and um, don't get sanctions filed against you just you know play nice in the sandbox and with that i want to thank my co-hosts for another great episode and thank you all for tuning in if you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes please reach out to us at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law thanks everyone bye bye (laughs) bye thanks for listening we'll be back next week with a new episode of heels in the courtroom Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today 